Straw Hut Media. Hi, Pride listeners. We hope you're home and safe during this crazy time. If you're not home because you work in healthcare, a grocery store, or any other industry that's still out and about, thank you, thank you, thank you. We appreciate you. Last week, we learned that James Buchanan may have been gay, but we also decided that we don't really want to claim him because he was kind of garbage. Today, we're forging ahead into part five of our series on the queer history of the United States. The Civil War is over. It's the late 1800s. We're going to go all the way until just before the Stonewall Riots in 1869. That's about 100 years to cover. So buckle in and get ready for me to mispronounce a lot of words. I'm sorry for that in advance. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Dr. Eric Cervini is back in the studio, and he's here to start us off. Today, we'll be talking about how the idea of being a homosexual or a gay person or a queer person came to be. Ooh, I like this. This is like the birth of labels. Mm -hmm. Got it. Birth of an identity. Birth of an identity. That's a movie. (laughs) That does sound good, huh? It'd be like a really deep voice for the trailer. The birth of an identity. Yes. That kind of sounds like it should be at the planetarium. So listeners, here we go. Pride presents part one, the birth of an identity. Up until uh, this time, until the end of the 19th century, uh, people generally considered uh, homosexuality to be a problem of behavior, right? It was actually an action. So yes, maybe you were a sodomite, but that only meant that you were guilty of a crime. But as we move deeper into the Victorian era, physicians, scientists, and philosophers are trying to find ways to label behaviors and see if they're inborn or learned, if they're naturally occurring variations or products of society. And so they're actually trying to categorize some of these conditions and basically take away that power from the church and say, eh, this isn't a matter of sin. This is actually a matter of a a medical condition. A preeminent medical doctor and forensic medical scientist of the time was a Frenchman named Auguste Ambrose Tardieu. He wrote about topics like forensic toxicology, child abuse, and sexuality. And he says, oh, well, they have these characteristics. So they might um, have these physical appearances of wearing makeup, flashy clothes, being unclean. Um, He looks for deformation of an anus, right? There were these physical attributes that were uh, signs of what he considered to be pederasty, right? That this kind of tradition continuing from, from ancient Greek times. And the word homosexual wasn't even used until 1869. The first known public use of the term homosexual in print is in an 1869 German pamphlet written by an Austrian-born Hungarian journalist, memoirist, and human rights campaigner, Karl Maria Kurtbeni. Published anonymously, the pamphlet advocated for the repeal of Prussia's sodomy laws. Already, uh, you have uh, people resisting, right? And because there were these laws, it triggered... Uh, people to say, well, actually, 
these uh, the victims of these laws actually represent a category, right? And that category is a homosexual. For the first time, the scientific and philosophical communities are entertaining the idea that sexuality is not as simple as they had believed, and that homosexuality might even be something natural. Or as Lady Gaga might say, they were born this way. And so you have one guy, Carl Ulrichs, so he defined homosexual as a third sex, right, which was a, a women's soul trapped in a man's body. Then you have uh, uh, Magnus Hirschfeld from, from Germany. He was actually an activist and a sexologist in Germany. And he said, well, it's a little bit more complex than that. So you have, instead of just physical characteristics, we also have to look at their organs, right? So because, of course, there are people who may have been uh, uh, intersex. Then you have sexual instincts, right? How they behave. And then moral behavior. Hirschfeld is probably best known for his theory on sexual intermediaries, which stated that there were possibly infinite types of naturally occurring sexual variations found across the human population. In 1899, Magnus Hirschfeld began publishing the Yearbook of Intermediate Sexual Types, the first journal in the world to deal with sexual variants. It continued to be published regularly until 1923. Both Ulrichs and Hirschfeld agree, sexuality is inborn. Because it's something that's inborn, then to persecute people, right, to throw them in jail, is, doesn't make sense, right? We should be helping these people instead. Um, and he uh, ends up being a pretty powerful activist figure later uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. In fact, Berlin was sort of the birthplace of the gay rights movement, with Ulrichs as essentially the first gay activist. Before World War I and the subsequent rise of the Nazi party, Berlin was moving toward a very liberal type of society. In the 1880s, a police commissioner stopped prosecuting gay bars and even led tours of the growing scene. In 1896, the first gay magazine, Der Eigener, or The Self-Owning, began publication. The following year, Magnus Hirschfeld founded the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which was, in a sense, the first gay rights organization. At the time, however, attention was focused primarily on homosexuality in men rather than in women. It's either something that's just marginally significant, they don't really believe it existed at all, it was believed at the time that, you know, without male semen, a woman couldn't achieve satisfaction. So relationships between women, especially sexual ones, just didn't make sense. It, it, it wasn't logical. Um, so that's why all the, the uh, literature and debate at the time was kind of centered on men. Sex between women wasn't even explicitly outlawed in Germany at the time. Still, lesbians were no more free to live openly, and attempts to join the male-centered gay rights movement with women's rights movements were around, though unsuccessful. There was the theater and music critic Theo Anna Sprungli, who in 1904 spoke to Hirschfeld's organization about homosexuality and the women's movement. Under the name Anna Ruling, she proposed that the gay rights and feminist movements should aid each other reciprocally, because both groups struggled for the same things, freedom, equality, and self-determination. Unfortunately, after she gave her historic speech, she never spoke or wrote again on the subject. Instead, she ended up concealing her past as Germany became more radically conservative, and almost nothing is known about her later life. 
Around this time, people all over the world were moving into much more scientific ways of thinking. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his Origin of Species, calling into question religious concepts of creation that had earlier been universally accepted as truth. After that, many more physicians and scientists questioned more aspects of life. And in comes the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud. He is extremely important because he rejected this idea of homosexuality being a disease and it being inborn. So he understood it more as an emotional developmental rather than a hereditary process. So according to Freud, we're all born with bisexual potential, but then over time, we're expected to develop this normal, you know, heterosexual orientation as long as nothing goes wrong. But if that process is stopped, if it's arrested, then we get homosexuality. And even though Freud disagrees with Ulrichs and Hirschfeld about the inborn quality of same-sex attraction, he's still relatively sympathetic towards people who are gay. And in fact, there is a really famous letter, uh, the mother of someone, of, of uh, a young man who she was worried about was gay uh, or a homosexual. Uh, and so wrote to Freud and said, what do I do? I'm so worried. He writes back and says, I gather from your letter that your son is a homosexual. So as you can see, that word is, is uh, becoming more common. I'm most impressed by the fact that you do not mention this term yourself in your information about him. May I question you why you avoid it? Homosexuality is assuredly no advantage, but it is nothing to be ashamed of. No vice, no degradation. It cannot be classified as an illness. We consider it to be a variation of the sexual function produced by certain arrest of sexual development. Many highly respectable individuals of ancient and modern times have been homosexuals, several of the greatest men among them, Plato, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, etc. It is a great injustice to persecute homosexuality as a crime and cruelty, too. If you do not believe me, read the books of Havelock Ellis, uh, who was another sexologist from uh, the end of the 19th century. As time goes by, Freud's theories about sexuality become more and more popular, not only about homosexuality, but about all kinds of aspects of the human psyche. He comes up with the Oedipal complex, dream interpretation, the id, ego, and superego, melancholia, all kinds of stuff. But his ideas about sexuality and how homosexuality came to be raised a new problem. And that was that if homosexuality was a matter of the mind, then it meant that you could be fixed and you could be prevented from being gay. So, and also if you were homosexual, perhaps you could even be cured. So even though he wasn't really preoccupied himself with these facts, a lot of his colleagues and the people who adopted the tenets of what he was arguing um, did run with that. And so that's where you get now this idea of you know, maybe conversion therapy or even parents will say, oh, if there was anything I could have done to prevent this from happening, to prevent my son or daughter or child from being a homosexual, that is a continuation of this idea that really was new at the beginning of the 20th century, that to be a homosexual is something that you could actually prevent. After the break, Oscar Wilde and burgeoning gay communities in Europe and the U.S. 
Welcome back. Before the break, we talked a lot about the origin of the term homosexual. Now, we'll look at some of the men who were at the forefront of these discussions during this time. One of the most notable early gay figures was playwright Oscar Wilde. Hello. To help us unpack the life of Oscar Wilde, we called a literature professor at Fresno State University in Central California. So my name is John Bynan. I am a professor of English at Fresno State, California State University, Fresno. I teach in the English department. Um, I am not necessarily an expert in LGBTQ history, but I do teach uh, lesbian and gay literature, a course I developed about 19 years ago and has been on the books ever since at Fresno State. Dr. John Bynum teaches courses in restoration and 18th century British literature and culture, plus queer theory and lesbian and gay literature. He co-edited Lesbian Dames, Sapphism in the Long 18th Century, and has published essays on Lady Mary Wortley Montague, William Beckford, Daniel Defoe, and Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure. Among other 18th century writers, John teaches Oscar Wilde really key figure, both in terms of Victorian literature and in terms of the history of sexuality. Born in 1854 in Ireland, Wilde came from a relatively eccentric family. He's probably best known for his plays and the novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. He had a wife and two children, but he had other interests. He had been uh, interested in, you know, sort of varieties of kinds of homoeroticism, some that stemmed from the Greek notions of homosexuality, some that were rooted in um, the aestheticist movement, which was basically a, a movement in Europe in the late 19th century to late 19th century that focused on um, art and uh, sort of upholding art for art's sake. He was a proponent of the aesthetic movement, which suggested that art and literature should focus on beauty rather than trying to communicate a moral or political message. He dressed flamboyantly, wearing colorful velvets and silks, and keeping his hair long. And he valued classical standards of beauty and desire when it came to the male body. Think the Statue of David. A very sexy statue, if I do say so myself. He was, he was already being connected, even... Um, before his trial with a series of individuals who were part of, I guess you could call them a sort of um, a queer underground in London. And through that community, he met a man named Lord Alfred Douglas. Uh, he was a younger British poet, aristocrat. Here's Eric again. He was 16 years younger. And uh, Douglas's father found out about it uh, and was so upset about the relationship that he wanted to expose Wilde, who's this older man who, you know, of course, was corrupting his son. See, Douglas's father was the Marquess of Queensbury, a Scottish nobleman, and he was pissed that not only was his son engaging in what he thought was inappropriate behavior with another man, but also they weren't even trying to be discreet about it. The Marquess confronted Wilde about it, but he denied there was anything going on. The two feuded for about a year during which time Oscar Wilde wrote his famous play, The Importance of Being Earnest. A few days after the play opened, the Marquess left his card for Wilde. It said, For Oscar Wilde, posing Sodomdite. He misspelled the word. Idiot. And so again, he's using this word which kind of carried over um, uh, and had more moral and biblical connotations than than what was currently in the, the medical field. Against the advice of everyone, Wilde sued for defamation. 
But the problem was there was actually a lot of evidence to support the accusation. During the trial, uh, you have hotel maids and a housekeeper uh, testifying that there had been young men in his bed, they had found stains on his sheets, pretty clear what was going on. The Marquess had hired private investigators and was able to get several male sex workers to testify against Wilde. They even read some especially homoerotic scenes from Wilde's novel. In the end, he was charged with 25 counts of gross indecency, and though his first trial ended with the jury unable to reach a verdict, he was retried three weeks later and found guilty. Both he and his lover Douglas were sentenced to two years hard labor, the maximum sentence allowed for the crime. Here's John again. And um, the judge actually famously says that that is totally inadequate for a case such as this, the worst case I've ever tried. Um, and and so the you know that is a significant moment in sort of consolidating, I guess, hatred around the practices of um, same-sex desire between men. After serving his time, Oscar Wilde moved to Paris. As a result of his time in prison, he was in poor health and was known to wander the streets drunk. Two years later, he passed away of meningitis and was buried just outside Paris in a leased pauper's grave. It wasn't for another nine years, once his debts were paid off, that he was moved and reinterred at his final resting place, the famous Père Lachaise Cemetery. But what's so important about his case is that uh, Wilde made this idea of effeminacy, right, and immorality and luxury that became uh, synonymous with sexual inversion, right? If you were a sodomite or a homosexual, then you were all the things that society said were bad about Oscar Wilde. One contemporary of Oscar Wilde was an English poet, philosopher, and activist named Edward Carpenter, who, despite living in England through the uproar caused by the Oscar Wilde trial, managed to maintain a relationship with his partner, George Merrill. John says Carpenter's works were interesting because they combined ideas of homosexuality and socialism. Sort of thinking about the ways in which um, same-sex love between men um, can be um, sort of liberatory and sort of moving us out of particular, you know, sort of conditions of oppressive life as they happen to be in, uh, you know, I guess maybe the mid-stages or the early stages of capitalism at the time that he's writing. Um, and that's going to be reflect, reflected later in the gay liberation movement. And there were more writers in both the U.S. and in Europe who were beginning to explore same-sex erotic desire in their writing, though discreetly. Um, Walt Whitman, for example, is writing Meet the Grass. In fact, Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde meet when Oscar Wilde goes to US, the U.S. and does a, a tour. And, um, and Walt Whitman's work is, you know, sort of widely understood now to be sort of rife with homoerotic, um, you know, content. Um, but yeah, at the time that Gertrude Stein is writing, you know, that's a little further into the 20th century, but definitely a, a sort of coterie of writers in Paris, a lot of them expats. Um, are getting together in salons and sharing their work. And, um, and again, there's, uh, you know, uh, there's ways in which uh, these folks are either not always overtly, but um, sort of more and more explicitly beginning to reveal the homoerotic kind of uh, desires or representations that they seem intent on trying to um, portray through their writing. 
Before World War II, Paris and Berlin were practically gay world capitals and attracted writers and artists of all kinds. Paris offered myriad gay bars and France's sodomy laws had been removed during the revolutionary period. Berlin had 22,000 known male sex workers in 1929 and also attracted writers and artists like Christopher Isherwood, whose book published in 1945, Berlin Stories, inspired the musical Cabaret. And don't forget that Berlin was also the place that Ulrichs and Hirschfeld, who we talked about earlier, lived and worked. But wait, this is a series about the queer history of the U.S., isn't it? What about New York? For a really long time, really up until uh, the 90s, historians always said, well, before World War II, yes, maybe there was this idea of being homosexual, but there wasn't really a gay culture not until World War II or afterwards. And George Chauncey found uh, what he called an extensive, organized, and highly visible gay world in New York before the war, going all the way to the beginning of the century, especially in the 1920s and early 30s. George Chauncey, a professor of history at Columbia University, is best known as the author of Gay New York, Gender, Urban Culture, and the Making of the Gay Male World, 1890 to 1940. And he found records, especially in these uh, organizations that were built to kind of maintain the morality of, of the city. One of them was called the Society for the Suppression of Vice, where they kept very detailed records of, you know, trying to prevent homosexuality or sexual deviance uh, in, in the 20s and 30s. And what Chauncey found was in the working class world there were very vibrant subcultures because working class men tended to be more tolerant than the middle class, right? So, you know, during the time of prohibition, uh, when when uh, uh, alcohol and liquor w were banned, uh, there was a very, very uh, diverse sexual underworld that took place in some of these uh, working class neighborhoods in New York City. And uh, what he found were uh, sometimes men had these public identities uh, so that they could, as he said, participate in the gay world without losing the privileges of the straight. So maybe you would be a middle class man who was married and had a perfectly normal life, maybe on the you know Upper West Side or something, and then would go down to the Bowery and go to the saloons and have a completely different uh, persona then. At the same time, Eric says there was an idea not just of a homosexual, but of a certain type of homosexual that people dubbed a fairy. So you may have heard that word before, oh, he's a fairy or something like that. And yes, it was pejorative. It wasn't uh, seen as a good word, but uh, a lot of people understood themselves uh, as a fairy, especially in um, some of these working class neighborhoods like the Bowery. But what's more is that they weren't regarded as a threat of any kind. Because, well, if you're going into a bar and you see a fairy, maybe someone who was wearing makeup or had, you know, um, some effeminate dress, that told you as a man that you were normal, right, because they existed. And so uh, it was this really interesting kind of dynamic that, that Chauncey found. Chauncey found evidence of all kinds of gay subcultures, including sexual activity in parks, bathhouses, cafeterias, and rooming houses. And this is all the beginning of the 20th century. And one of my favorite things, of course, are drag balls that were just 
absolutely immense, especially in Harlem. One of them was called the Hamilton Lodge Ball. Um, uh, some people called it the Faggots Ball. These drag balls had been held in Hamilton Lodge in Harlem since 1869. And as knowledge of the balls spread throughout the gay community, they became a safe place for gay men to get together. Even though they were popular both inside and outside the LGBTQ community, drag balls were considered illegal and immoral by mainstream society. The balls were periodically investigated by a moral reform organization, and in 1916, the committee released a report describing the scenes they had witnessed. They described a place filled with phenomenal male perverts, inexpensive frocks and wigs, looking like women, which honestly sounds like a pretty sweet party. So literally since this idea of being a homosexual existed, uh, and it grew and grew in popularity until the 20s, and then it peaked um, in the early 30s and reached 8,000 attendees in 1937. And this is for a giant drag ball. And so one reason we don't know about it is because, well, since it was happening in Harlem, um, the white press didn't really pay attention, but the black press did. And uh, it wasn't really buried, like people would talk about it. But then, when prohibition was repealed in 1933, suddenly the government was back in the bars regulating everything. So you have, especially in New York, the rise of the state liquor authority, um, where you, if you were a bar, you had to prove that you weren't disorderly. And if you had gay people in your bar, right, if you had gay men holding hands or kissing or, or, or you know, even being presumed to be gay, then the state could shut you down for running a disorderly bar. So legitimate bars, and this happens all the way through the 20th century in, in places like New York, legitimate bars couldn't be gay. So what happened? Well, uh, if you wanted to have a gay bar, then it needed to be illegitimate, which meant it was often run by the mafia. And we won't get into this yet, but one of those bars that were run by the mafia was the Stonewall Inn. Next week, in the finale of our six-part series on the queer history of the United States, we'll talk about the Stonewall Riots of 1969 and the beginning of the gay pride movement. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. And you can find Dr. Eric Cervini at E-R-I-C-C-E-R-V-I-N-I. Special thanks to Dr. John Bynum from Fresno State University. You can find out more about him at fresnostate.edu. And you can follow him on Twitter at John Bynon. That's B-E-Y-N-O-N. Please stay safe and healthy out there, listeners. Keep social distancing and listening to podcasts. Stay home if you can, wash your hands, drink plenty of water, and call your loved ones. Mic drop. Get it. You're like, please don't drop the microphone. Don't do that, though. Please don't do that.